Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, February 3rd. We begin with a look at Wednesday's vote by the Conservative Party of Canada to oust leader Aaron O'Toole. We speak with a professor of political science from Dalhousie University for some insight into what's next for the CPC and who could possibly be the next leader. Then we head to southern Alberta for the continuing blockade protest taking place at the Coots border crossing. Global News reporter Lauren Pullen brings us the latest on the demonstration, now into day six. Next, we look at the impact resource revenue has had on Alberta's finances and how the model could be improved. We hear details on a new study on the topic from Tegan Hill, economist with the Fraser Institute. And finally, it's called The Beautiful Game, Poetry in Motion, and Canada is rewriting their story in the soccer world. Our Dave McIver explores the evolution of footy in Canada with national team alumni and head coach of York United FC, Martin Nash. 18 months after becoming the leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole voted out as leader on Wednesday with insight into what comes next for the Federal Conservative Party. We're joined this morning by Daniel Bellon, who's director of McGill Institute for the Study of Canada and professor of Department of Political Science at McGill. Good morning to you, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, so Aaron O'Toole's downfall, I mean, it's been coming for a while. It was a bit of a snap decision to make it happen just this week. But was it inevitable after losing the last federal election? Well, it was quite likely. You know, when you're the leader of the official opposition and uh, you fail to uh, to bring your, your party to, to government... And that's what happened to uh, to Erin O'Toole, to uh, Andrew Scheer before him, but also you look at liberals, Michael Ignatieff, Stéphane Zion. I think that uh, your life expectancy as a leader is considerably reduced. Especially when it comes to the Conservative Party. So I know it might be a bit of a loaded question, Danielle, uh, but uh, let's talk about the division within the Conservative Party. Not just this time out, but it seems like... Um, after Stephen Harper, they, they can't have a cohesiveness that they need to, to get some ground. Absolutely. So we have to understand, it's, it's, uh, remember that it's a, a party that was only created in 2003, and so it's not that old compared to, say, the Liberal Party of Canada or even the NDP. And, and I think that there are still things that, uh, you know, need to be sorted out. But you have the, the old, you know, tension, well-known tension between the, the progressive conservatives, especially out, out east, and the more populist side, people who originally were uh, tied to the, the Canadian alliance and uh, the Reform Party, of course. But you have, you know, a more uh, general urban-rural divide. You also have uh, religious or cultural conservatives and those who are more focused on, on economic issues, um, so, yes, a lot of uh, factions within the party, and Stephen Harper was able, as the founder of the party, someone who had a lot of authority, was able to actually uh, keep the house in order. <laughs> uh, and the thing with Harper, too, is that I mentioned uh, some uh, opposition leaders who, who actually, uh, uh, you know, lost their, their job after failing to to uh, bring their their party to power, uh, Stephen Harper survived the 2000 his defeat in the, in 2004, uh, and and he was able then in 2006 to uh, to bring the Conservatives in power first, of course, with the minority government. 
So with all that you mentioned, all those divisions within the Conservative Party, does it come down to they need a strong leader, someone who will bring them back together again? Or does that happen within the party? Is it even possible there's so many divisions in there? Yeah, I I think you need not just a strong leader, but a strong vision. So Stephen Harper, at the time, the Conservatives were really centered on the economy. Right and 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 fiscal issues, um, but right now it's it's hard to know what the exact focus of the party is on fiscal issues. You can't really adopt uh, kind of Harper's approach right now because of the the pandemic and the the context has changed. Right, but they need a coherent vision. And the problem with Erin O'Toole, of course, is that he, he flip flop quite a bit. In part because you have. Uh, Two main challenges when you be, want to become leader uh, of the, the Conservative Party of Canada. The first one is to become leader in the first place. And so uh, in the case of O'Toole, who's more of a red Tory, a moderate centrist conservative, uh, he, he played the true blue. He said, I'm a true conservative and adopted a more populist rhetoric. But then after he became leader, he moved further towards the center. And that alienated part of the conservative base and, and many of his MPs. So, uh, and because he failed to deliver victory to the, uh, the, the, the conservatives last year at the federal elections, then I think his days were numbered. But there are other things that have happened since the elections that have, uh, you know, uh, exacerbated the discontent within uh, the caucus and within the, the conservative base, including the treatment or the, his approach to the convoy, which was very guarded compared to other MPs like Andrew Scheer or Pierre Poilievre, who have really embraced the protesters. Good stuff, and I guess we'll see how this unfolds moving ahead for the CPC. Thank you so much for your time, Daniel. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day. You as well. That is Danielle Bellon, Director of McGill Institute for the Study of Canada and Professor, Department of Political Science at McGill University. And today, five, the blockade protest at the day five, maybe day six now. Uh, here we go. This is continuing, and it seems to be evolving. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Lauren Pullen is a reporter for Global News Calgary. She is down there at the Coots border in southern Alberta, where protesters have blocked the highway once again. What is the latest, Lauren? What can you tell us? Yeah, good morning, Annie. Day six. It is day, day six, six down here. Day wow. <laughs> um, uh, Yeah, and as you mentioned, a lot is evolving, a lot is changing here. Uh, so there there was progress yesterday, uh, one lane open and in either direction for a certain traffic to be able to get through. Uh, that was people who live in the area, people who needed to get to the border for work and emergency vehicles. But as you mentioned, uh, now there is uh, yet another blockade. It's about 20 kilometers farther up the highway, just outside of a town called uh, Milk River. And uh, what essentially has happened here is uh, protesters have blocked off the southbound uh, lane of the highway. And right in front of them is actually a row of RCMP. So RCMP kind of set up this stop area here to escort people through um, the protest zone down uh, right close to the border. And then sometime after that, uh, protesters actually set up their own blockade just on the other side of the RCMP here. So, again, we only know that it's a select group of people who are getting through. Uh, have not too sure exactly when the protesters uh, threw up this blockade on the southbound lane here, because when we drove by last night, the police had blocked off the highway and were escorting people through, but uh, there was no protest action in terms of blocking off that lane. So, clearly, at least 
some of the protesters have completely disregarded what the police are trying to do, the rule of law in particular, and are just doing their own thing. Is it, does it, does, do we know, is it some of the protesters who were down at Coots, they've just kind of moved themselves, or is this a different group that's rolled in? Yeah, so there has been kind of a secondary protest area here for the past, since since Tuesday, rather. So there have been police here and there uh, have been protesters. When we drove by last night and even the night before, they were on the side of the road, though. They were on the shoulder of the road, though. But that, that has moved, had movement into the southbound lane and again now blocking that full road traffic. So there has kind of been this secondary protest um, in this area since, Tuesday, but again, things have evolved and, and have changed in the last uh, few hours here. You know, you mentioned the police presence and, uh, you know, as far as tow trucks or any other signs that they, they might be looking at moving in and breaking this up for once and for all? Or what are what are you hearing and what are you seeing as far as the police are concerned? Yeah, police, uh, police are holding their cards pretty close on this one. We haven't really heard about what next steps are. Um, as I'm talking to you on the phone, though, it does appear that some local traffic is actually still being let through in the southbound lane once they're able to kind of weed their way uh, through through the protesters who have who blocked most of the area here. Uh, we do know in terms of what has already unfolded that no arrests have been made uh, in connection with the uh, initial blockade down right by the border or this one here, and uh, no reports of violence uh, um, overnight as well, or really with any of, of these protests that we have been made aware of at this time. But in terms of concrete action and next steps from RCMP, uh, we don't know when things are going to be changing. We've heard from lots of truckers calling in to say that they are not happy with what's happening, that they're sitting there, their loads are stuck in their trucks, can't get across the border in either direction. So is, is that anger starting to grow from the truckers that want to get moving side of things? Yeah, I mean, our Dan, Dan Grummet up in uh, Global Edmonton did a beautiful story with, with truckers and, and their frustrations and their angers. A lot of them aren't actually just sitting here waiting. I, I believe that they've kind of had to figure out a detour at this point in time, right? I think that we've spoken sure. to a trucker who actually ducked through BC to get there. So uh, I, it's not uh, it's not a group of truckers parked here for six days waiting for this border to open. I think they've kind of realized right now, we don't know when the situation is going to be changing. But yes, uh, from from Dan's story, the frustrations, you can you can definitely tell and, and, and hear that they are mounting in terms of those people who are who are trying to get their job done. Not over yet, that's for sure. We appreciate the update, Lauren. Thanks. That is Global News Calgary reporter Laura Pullen. Alberta's reliance on non-renewable resource revenue has fueled instability in provincial finances for decades. That statement comes from a study looking at a new financial framework for Alberta. With details on the findings of a study, we're joined this morning by Tegan Hill, economist with the Fraser Institute. Good morning, Tegan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the study. Can you break it down a little bit, the findings, and maybe you know we'll, we'll get into the discussion about what can be done to fix Alberta's finances for the long term? Mm-hmm. There's a really big risk in this upcoming budget that Alberta will continue to rely on the resource revenue roller coaster, given the high revenues that we expect over the coming years. Instead of spending those, those one-time volatile resource revenues, Alberta should save a significant portion to reestablish and ensure long-term stability for the future. Well, it's interesting because, uh, uh, Tegan, I'm reminded of the uh, 2013, well, when in 2013, the Alberta Sustainability Fund was eliminated uh, 10 years after it was introduced. 
So can you explain what the Alberta Sustainability Fund was? I mean, it sounds like, you know, something similar to what you're talking about. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, why would we uh, bring it back like uh, in the same fashion or would we make some tweaks to something like this? Yeah, correct. So the logic of the Alberta Sustainability Fund um, was really simple. It was save some resource revenue during the good times so you can provide a stable level to the budget during the bad times. Um, And we found that actually the government could fully fund this rainy day account and balance its budget by 2024-25 through spending reductions of 2.8% annually over the next three years. That plan would also put the province in a position to reestablish mandatory contributions to the Heritage Fund, which has a separate function um, that would prepare the province for potential permanent decline in resource revenue in the future. So is it technically calling it something different then? I mean, you know, a heritage fund as opposed to a rainy day fund, is that sort of what we're talking? So what we would see is two distinct funds with distinct functions. If um, if we have kind of muddied the waters between what those funds are intended to do, sometimes we see that the government will use it for whatever intended purpose. And, you know, you referenced, okay, we had the ASF in the past. Why didn't it work? Both the ASF, the Alberta Sustainability Fund, and the Heritage Fund, um, you know, were set up. Heritage Fund is still set up, but hasn't been working according to how those funds were intended because they were based in statutory rules. So in the future, we would want these funds to be based in constitutional rules, and that would allow them each to fill their own separate function, the ASF as a rainy day account kind of for short-term cyclical changes, and then the Heritage Fund for the long-term. Tegan, do you think part of it is we, we, we kick this can further down the road because of the volatility and, and the roller coaster ride, as we mentioned at the beginning of this segment, in the sense that oil prices now higher than they've been in about seven years and, and it's coming back in. So you think, OK, well, we'll get to that project. Uh, but, you know, when, when we have these glimpses of, of higher prices and more revenue, it's hard to think about, you know, a contingency plan. Absolutely. I think. Um, it's very attractive for governments, and governments in Alberta have had a bad habit of spending most or all that resource revenue as it comes in the door. But that leads to high levels of spending, such that when resource revenues inevitably decline, Alberta will incur deficits. So that creates that boom and bust cycle, and that means that if we use resource revenue today to temper the deficits, um, they're only going to return once that level of resource revenue uh, is no longer there. So is the Fraser Institute position then that we just kind of need to start thinking outside the box and don't do the same thing we've been doing forever, find a a completely new and different fiscal framework or just rejig what we already had? So the fiscal framework, one, yes, we need to change what we're doing right now. Um, Point blank, yes, we need to change things. The fiscal framework actually looks really at what has Alberta governments tried in the past that has worked And how can we improve these policies so that they can stay in place throughout time? And so, you know, we base our recommendations on funds that have existed, but say that we want to make these constitutional rules so that, you know, when times are good, governments still have to follow it. But also when times are bad, they have to follow these rules. So, for example, with the ASF, it just it became drained as soon as it it was convenient, as soon as the budget needed support, and then it was just eventually eliminated. We want to keep that fund going in the long term. Well, you know, I'm wondering because I know that this is a, a very unique situation, and, and in Alberta, we have to have an Alberta-made solution. But are you uh, uh, privy to other countries that are getting it right and doing something that you know maybe we could look at, you know, borrowing their model? 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of countries that have something similar to the Heritage Fund. Um, one that we like to point to in the U.S. is Alaska's fund. And they do exactly that with that constitutional rule. They really protect that fund. Um, they also pay a portion of the earnings annually in the form of dividends. And that creates really um, an equity stake or a more visible stake in the uh, citizens and residents of Alaska because they want that fund to continue so they get that dividend. Um, and then in turn, you know, it continues to grow and build for the future. So certainly there's other examples that we've, we've looked at to inform this. Interesting and important discussion. Thanks so much for joining us, Tegan. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Tegan Hill, an economist with the Fraser Institute. I just, you know, I'm, I'm beside myself because, you know, to all those naysayers, and I, and it's not to look at me, so it's, I'm not saying that in any way, but I was saying, you know, energy, traditional energy, from the ground energy that we have here in the province isn't dead. We're seeing that now. It was over $75 per barrel for WCS. Right, highest and, we've seen in years. Yeah, we did see last time, the last report, uh, we, you know, uh, put some of those bucks toward the deficit with these unexpected, you know, prices. It is hard. And I understand, you know, in the good times, it's might as well buy some fancy stuff, not thinking about the rainy day. It's human nature. This happens in our houses. Yeah, it does. I think we've just done it for so long, though, now. It, you know, we realize that it's not going to be there forever. Well, fortunately, we're seeing the tech sector really take a step up. Mm-hmm. And we, we've heard about some of the different uses for the downtown core. We've heard that the downtown vacancy rate finally, over the past handful of days, showing some positivity. I mean, leaps and bounds, no. I think we're up about a percent as far as seeing some more offices and some more desks filled in the downtown core. Better up than down, though. Better up than down, and and for the first time in quite some time. But... We, we've got to get off this. And when I say addiction, I, you know, I'm a big oil and gas guy. I Heck believe yeah. in our in what we do here in Alberta. Why we got to where we're at. Well, we have to we have to have that diversification. So I like that term better than saying turn off the taps. Uh, I don't know. I would just be nice to have got it right. To, you know, I always say, when's the best time to plant a tree? A hundred years ago, the next place. It would be nice to have done that. Exactly. I don't know. So That's, we need to keep talking about what we're going to do moving forward. Yeah, what we, what we can do moving forward and what we can do to help all sectors. Mm-hmm. You know, The men's national soccer team is creeping ever closer to qualifying for the World Cup in Qatar for the first time since 1986, something that would have been seen as nearly impossible about a decade ago. Our on-air contributor Dave McIver caught up with a former national team player to get into what has happened to get them to this point. On October 16, 2012, the men's national soccer team in this country lost 8-1 to Honduras, ending their chances to qualify for a World Cup. Just under a decade later, the team is on the cusp of qualifying for World Cup 2022 in Qatar. So how do we get here? A team that almost a decade ago had no chance to qualify for the World Cup. Something for someone who was born in 1988, has seen pretty much his whole life. Martin Nash is a former national team player who appeared in 38 different matches for Team Canada over his career scoring two goals. He's now the head coach of York United FC in the Canadian Premier League. We chatted about what's happened over the last decade that has caused this turnaround, and the first thing he mentioned was visibility. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, I think the game's evolved in, the, in Canada with more, more and more professional teams keep coming in every year, and um, it started, you know, about ten years ago was when the white, uh, when the uh, MLS really came to Canada. You know, Toronto was in maybe a little bit before, you know, then Vancouver, then Montreal. But adding those teams and um, a bit more visibility to the sport uh, really helped. Um, so, uh, 
there's a lot more more clubs now, especially in the, in the recent uh, recent times. So I think that's really helped as well. And there's just more visibility for the sport in general. So um, you're getting more and more players getting that opportunity instead of having to go to Europe and play. There's opportunity on their doorstep to to live, grow, and uh, learn and, and become professional players. Visibility and recruitment. For many years, Canadians would see their top homegrown stars travel to Europe and eventually, once citizenship was gained, join those clubs at the international level, if invited. But that's changed, and there's a reason for that. Part of being the Canadian national team coach and then part of the, the first team staff, you have to be a good recruiter because there are players out there that have Canadian heritage or ties to Canada playing at a good level. Um, some you get and some you don't, but um, I think uh, John's done a great job of getting a lot of those those fringe players that could play for multiple countries to come play for Canada, and he's got them to buy in, which is uh, which has been incredible. And I, I think it's not easy to do, um, but he's been able to sell the program and the vision um, to players that could come in and help. And he, he keeps doing it; he's, he hasn't stopped uh, doing it, and he's going to continue to do it. So I, I think that really helps. Um, so you know that that's a big part of it too but i think the biggest thing that he's done is, is bring a oh yes john herdman the native of Consett county durham england who came over from the new zealand women's team in 2011 to guide the canadian women's national soccer team he led them to a gold medal finish at the 2011 pan american games and back-to-back gold medals at the london olympic games in 2012 and the rio de janeiro games in 2016. On January 8th, 2018, he was named the head coach of Canada's men's national soccer team. And the impact he had was almost immediate. I think he's just got, got belief. I, I think there's a, it's an incredibly talented era. Um, and he's coming at a good time. And he's, he's just added belief to a really talented group. And he's got them all on the same page and working together. And I think that's a big part of it. He's created a culture within the group um, of, you know, every man... Uh, is helping the next, you know. So they, he's got a great culture um, and a great belief uh, amongst the group and players, and uh, they just they just look like a, a they they move as one. They're all together and everyone's on the same page, and it's uh, great to see. Culture and belief: the belief that they can go in and win against any team they come up against. But it is also the way they play. The team doesn't have a certain identity per se. They go into games and can really play any game that suits them that will give them the most success against their opponent. Yeah, they have that ability. I think they've, they've got enough ball-playing midfielders. They've got a, a ton of explosive players. Um, it's a nightmare for any team to, to deal with, um, especially in transition with, with their pace. But like you said, they don't have to get into a transition. They're able to break teams down with some of the passing they have. And, and the dynamic movement from the front players so it's uh it's a really fun team to watch play um and there's a lot of talent and um yeah i think you know i'm pretty sure they're going to qualify for this world cup now and i think they're going to cause some noise and uh maybe have a few upsets in it and the impact this could have on the grassroots soccer in this country martin says it could be like something we've never seen before yeah, I mean, I think it'd be massive uh, visibility to the game, and it's uh, you know, and with both the men's and women's team both doing well, I think it just it just helps the game, and it could really explode. Uh, I saw, you know, I was around the World Cup in '86. I was 11, and I remember a lot of uh, you know stuff around the World Cup. A lot of um, I remember we had soccer balls with all the flags of all the teams in the World Cup, and um, the the game kind of took a bit of explosion there. It was 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 really. Uh, was quite good in Canada. It just it fell, fell off in the last 10, 12 years, but 
um, it's come back and there's a, there's a lot of talent right now. And um, I, I think with if the team goes to and does well and makes makes it out of the group stage, I think it could be massive for the growth of the sport in this country. With another 2 nothing win over El Salvador last night, Canada remains at the top of the CONCACAF qualifying table, winning their last six games. We're truly seeing something that we haven't seen in many, many years in this country with the Canadian men's national soccer team. If they can continue what they're doing and qualify for the World Cup, we might get moments like this. Ball holds up. He's going to take it himself. Sam Amakumi in a Anakumi! Anakumi's first for Canada. Can you believe it? They do. Red, white, and freezing cold. Oh, Canada. Oh, baby. Another famous victory. At soccer's highest level. A big thanks to One Soccer and Martin Nash from York United FC. I'm Dave McIver with 770 CHQR. You can feel the excitement. I love when they yes. scream, when they just get so pumped like that. It's just such an exciting sport right now. Yeah. Amazing. Well, it's the one sport I played growing up. My parents did not put me in hockey. They tried my brother, and it didn't work out for him, so we're yeah. not going to give Andy that shot. <laughs> I digress. Does anybody know a psychologist? I did not get that opportunity as a Canadian. But here's the thing. Hockey gets the biggest shine in this country. Sure. And I get it, right? Soccer, though, every kid, my toddler started last year. They're going to be going again this year. It's affordable. Yes. It's, it's a great entry to sport. And I would hope that what we're seeing now from the this team that's doing something that's almost 30 years ago, right? Uh, well, yeah, 30, yeah, just shy of 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, no, no, over 30 years ago. I, I, my, I, I digress. 36 years ago, 1986. Maybe this will do what the Toronto Raptors did for basketball and I'm Vince sure, Carter. I'm sure it will. And Get I'm more sure people it is. involved, more the, young people. The women winning and now the men, it just, you know, adds to the excitement of it all. And kids want to emulate what they see. Yeah. And they know it can actually be a thing for them in this country now if they're good. It's always a possibility. So, yeah, and, and you're right. Soccer's great for young kids starting out because you know they learn their team sports. Great exercise. You don't need to buy any equipment. All they do is run around in a little clump and follow the ball. If you get fancy, it's cleats. But otherwise, your running shoes will work fine to get things started. Just fine. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need the, the skates. You don't need the ice fees. It's a great sport. It really is. Love so. to see that Canada. You know, both the men's and women's side, but the men's team is super exciting right now because of the time. Yeah. I mean, how many people weren't alive? Back yes. in 86. I know it? I wasn't. Uh, yeah, you are quite vibrant. I am yeah. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.